Welcome to another inspiring message recorded at Rivers Church. See, I learned something about myself growing up, is that I have no composure about stuff sometimes. Now, when it comes to traveling, you can either drive, or take a train and all those things, but my preferred method would be flying. You get some people in life who love flying. You get some people in life who fly so much that they hate flying. But for me, I'm one of those people who love flying. It doesn't matter where we're going. If I'm at the airport, I'm happy, okay? We could be going to Durban or New York. It doesn't phase me. I'm jumping on a plane. You can ask my wife. I'm like a, like a child. I'm like, we need to get there early. We need to check in. We need... Some people aren't like that. Some people are like, man, I've got another flight. I learned this the other day. When you're growing up, anybody, like if you've ever been on a plane before, your first flight was probably an economy class and you didn't mind. Oh, you can see where I'm going, right? But then as you get older, I think maybe they send you to a different entrance on the plane and you notice that there's bigger seats when you first, I don't know if anybody's, it's a very strange phenomenon. I'm like, oh. And then you get to smaller seats that are still bigger than your seats because you go past premium economy. And then you get to your seat. And all of a sudden you get a, there's a spirit of envy that starts. I'm going to live with you. I've flown business class once in my life. Now before you get excited, I got an upgrade. I have no composure. Everybody next to me is very calm like, I can take this for free. <laughs> they give you pajamas on some airlines. I'm like, anyway, I may or may not still use those pajamas today. But one of the perks of flying on a different class is you get more luggage. Now, for some people, that's necessary. Husbands, don't look at your wives. For other people, like myself, it's less necessary. You see, when I fly locally, I only take hand luggage. I'm... I'm, I'm kind of like in and out. I just want to get out the plane, take my bag, walk past. You know the carousel? Yeah. And it's always the first bag that comes out on the carousel never gets picked up. Yeah. Have you, has anybody noticed that? Because <laughs> you rush to the carousel, you wait, and then there's the first bag, and it normally has some sort of bow on it, and it just goes. <laughs> and then you wait, you wait, and you your bag's coming. As you walk, you turn around, and it's still there. And you're like, where is this person? Why is their baggage coming out first? But one of the perks is that you get more Luggage. The only problem is I don't like check-in luggage because I don't trust baggage handlers. If you are a baggage handler, no offense. The reason I don't trust baggage handlers is this, is I've traveled with a new bag once in my life and we were on the same flight, my luggage and I. <laughs> so I know there's just the one flight. When I landed, that bag looked like it had done 10 round-the-world trips. I was proud of my bag. It had one of the locks on it where you can put, you have to like lose the key and then clip it on. It had one. I was, and I don't trust flying because, that. in fact, when I was growing up, my dad always used to tell me, he's like, hey, in your hand luggage bag, take your nicest clothes in case your bag goes missing. Because that way when you land, at least you have clothing at your destination. Some of you are like, wow, I didn't know. I didn't make, make notes. I, that was for free. But you see, I don't trust the baggage handlers because often they take your bags and with or without the fragile sticker, they don't handle with care. They'll chuck it around, throw it around, and when you get it back, it looks beat up and broken and damaged. In fact, I'm sure many of us, if you've flown, 
you've had baggage that's been damaged. Don't put your hand up. And don't say the airline. But how often do we do the same thing in our lives? We put our lives in the hands of people who don't value our lives, who have no mind for, mind for our future. And what they end up doing is damaging, breaking, and throwing our lives around. Instead, why don't we put our lives in the hands of Jesus and watch what he'd do and how he could change our lives? You see, there's many stories in the Bible that explain, that gives you a picture of what happens when you take your life and you put it in the life of Jesus. I mean, in the hands of Jesus. But my favorite is Jesus feeding the 5,000 because it was basically an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet with bread. What's not to like? Unless you don't like seafood, then. I'm sure there's another miracle in the Bible for you. Anyway, moving swiftly along. Now, to give you some context, Jesus was preaching and teaching. What happened was people gathered. It's called the feeding of the 5,000, but most scholars assume that there were more people there because they only counted the men. So there's about 15 to 20,000 is what most scholars assume. So there's a lot of people, right? Now, picture this. Jesus is with his disciples. They see the lots of people happening, and the disciples are clever. They see trouble coming, so they go to Jesus. It's not written in the Bible, but you can assume that this happens. And they say, Jesus, listen, people are getting hangry. Jesus says, why? Well, there's a lady in the fourth row. We asked her to sit in a very nice piece of grass, and she said no. And she's like, okay. And there was, a, there was a gentleman outside. We asked him to park his donkey in a specific parking. And all that he did was walk over one of our, fo- our feet. That's why Judas is, you know, he's... So then the, so Jesus says to the disciples, no, 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 don't send them away and don't send them home. You feed them. And they said, well, what money? And now Judas obviously had the money back. So look at Jesus, like Jesus would, and he's like, I don't know. I'm sure there was more in here at one point. I don't know. I don't think we have enough. It's a Christian joke. You'll get it later. And what Jesus says is, well, what do you have? And then they look around. I'm sure they ask one another. They ask people. Eventually, they got to find a boy. I don't know if the boy gave them their lunch or if they took the lunch from the boy. The Bible doesn't say. All the Bible says, written by the disciples, is there was a boy and there was fish and there was bread. So let's assume that he did it voluntarily. But they bring the, the, the fish and the bread to Jesus. Jesus has the people sit down. And then he gives thanks. And, it, and it, look at what it says in John 6. It says, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus performed a miracle, but what's interesting is what would have happened that morning. They didn't have fridges, so the fish couldn't have been like yesterday's fridge, I mean fish from the freezer. It was freshly caught. So there was a fisherman. He probably worked for INJ. He put his hook in the water. Don't laugh. They make the best fish fingers. And they, and he would have taken the fish, and then he would have taken that fish, and he would have sold it to a lady. At the same time, there would have been a baker who'd probably just made a fresh bread roll. Barley, chia butter, And then from his hands, he would have put it in the hands of a lady. The lady would have went home, and she would have taken the fish, taken the bread, and she would have packed lunch for her son. And she would have taken the lunch, and she would have put it in the hands of her son. And the son would have walked, walked, sat down, watched what was happening, been amazed by Jesus. And when this need arrives, he puts all what was taken, the lunch, in the hands of the 
disciples. And then from the hands of the disciples, it gets to the hands of Jesus. And what's interesting is through all the hands that it passed through, the miraculous only happened when it got to the hands of Jesus. And the same is true for our lives. When we put it in the hands of Jesus, our lives can change. The title of your message is simply this, His Hands. We're going to take a look at Jesus' hands and what happens when we put our lives in His hands. You know, this is a Interesting story, but there's many stories that involve the hands of Jesus when he was on the earth. In fact, a large number of the miracles, like I mentioned earlier, happened when people brought Jesus and he would lay his hands on them. In fact, we're going to look at one such day to see this principle because it's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. And it says this in Mark 8. It's going to come up on the screen behind you, but I'm going to read it from my Bible because it just makes me feel more spiritual. So, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. They didn't ask, they begged, they were desperate for a touch from heaven almost. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when, and when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on them. I'll just brush over that quickly. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. I think so many of us, as we've gone through the year, we've lost the ability to see everything clearly. And as we go to December, as we trust God and we put our lives in his hands, we can begin again to see everything clearly. But there's a process that happens in the story. And the first is this, is when the people bring the, the man to Jesus, Jesus leads him out of the city or leads him out of the village. And your first point is this, his hands lead us. We would understand in our lives, the hands of Jesus, they lead us in certain directions and they lead us to different places. You see, I find it interesting that he takes the, man of the, the hand of the man and he leads him out. He leads him out of the village and out of his current situation. And he leads him into the future that he has for him. You know, what's interesting is that he led him out of the village. I think there's two reasons for that. The first is this. He had to deal with some private issues in a private place. We can't go through life dealing with private issues in a public forum. Aren't you grateful that we have a savior who comes to us and says, actually, I'm going to help you? But you see, if we're going to let Jesus deal with us privately, it means we need to be obedient to him. You see, the man followed Jesus and did what he said. So often we follow Jesus, but we do it on our terms. We're partially obedient. You know what the thing about partially obedient is? It's still disobedience. It's just a nicer word for it. And in our lives, when we accept Jesus into our lives, he's both Lord and savior, not just savior. So he saves us, but if we make him Lord, then we have to follow him. We don't get to pick and choose what we want in life. We just say, hey, I'm going to trust God. And when he does, he leads us out of the village that we find ourselves in, into his plans, his promises, and his future for us. And what's interesting is not only does he deal with it in a, in a private setting. Can I just say, if you have an Instagram account, just because your Instagram account is private doesn't mean that that's a private setting to sort stuff out. Careful what you post. Rather go to God instead of people and get the opinion, no, not get the opinion of people, rather get the word of God into the situation and see how he can deal with it privately. But the other reason is this, is sometimes we find ourselves in poor environments. You see, he had to take him out of the village so that he could step into his future. And so often God wants to take us out of the village we are in and, take, and set us into his plans and his promise because the village can shrink, cause us to shrink and not grow. Yeah. It's interesting that he said, hey, I see people and they look like trees. Because trees, we see this principle applied. There's two types of tree. The first tree is this. It's called a, 
Um, it's called a maple tree. It's a Norway maple tree. And it's a big, beautiful tree. It's very pretty. I've heard. I've never seen one. But one of its traits is because it's so big and pretty, it creates lots of shade. So people can sit under the tree and enjoy the shade. But in creating shade, it does two things. One, it's very greedy. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't be greedy. The other thing that it does is the shade that it creates, or the shade that it throws for the young people, it stops the trees below it from growing. So it grows at the expense of other trees. Let's make sure that we're not surrounded by people like that who throw shade on us, whose shade causes us not to grow, and they're too greedy, and they take all the nutrients. There's another type of tree. It's called a cottonwood tree. Again, another aesthetically pleasing tree. The only problem is, even though it grows big, it's got a shallow and soft root system. And what happens to the shallow and soft root system is this, is it causes rotting from the inside out. What's more than that is that when a storm comes, because it has no stability, it's easily tipped over. In our lives, we need to make sure that we aren't like this, nor do we have people around us. Instead, we should be people whose roots run deep. We should be planting the right village. In fact, God wants to take us out of the village and plant us in his church because then our lives will flourish. That's when the miraculous can happen. Even when it's scary. Understand that we know that Jesus carried the man out of the city. The blind man had no idea where he was going. He was blind. Jesus carried him and his friends told him this was Jesus. This could have been a prank. He has no idea. And they carried and, and he walked and he walked. And then Jesus does the miraculous. And we should walk in the same manner that he does. Our eyes closed but our ears open. Because if Jesus is leading us, he's going to take us to a better place. Second point in your notes is this. His hands heal us. Not only do they lead us, but then they begin to heal us. Just like this is a miracle of healing, God wants to do the same thing in our lives, not just physically, but spiritually. Let's imagine, you, let's imagine for a second, once you've taken, written that down. Just close your eyes and pretend you're the blind guy for a minute. Imagine what he saw. He would have been walking, hands held, being held by Jesus' hand, and as he walked, there would have been a moment where he pauses. The Bible says Jesus hasn't said anything to him yet. It's just quiet. Kind of like this. And then all he hears is this. <laughs> Keep your eyes closed. Don't say open your eyes. Um, Jesus? Yes. Did you just spit on me? <laughs> um, just trust, just have faith, my child. It's raining a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> and then beyond that, he takes his hands and then he rubs it on the man's eyes. You can open your eyes now, by the way. Often people overlook that in the miracle. And I, what you want to understand is this. is if I've, I've read through Scripture, right? And Jesus does use spit on the ground, etc., etc. But Jesus has performed other miracles. I don't know if there's a scale of miracles from 1 to 10. But I would say resurrection would be a 10. And he had to spit on no one. In fact, he, one of them he touches the cuff and the other two he calls out. So why did he spit? I think the better question is not what, what did he use, but where did it come from? You see, spit came from the mouth of God. And even though it was messy and a little bit gross, what you've got to understand is this, is the mouth of God, two things come from it, the breath of life, and that's what formed you, and the word of God, that's what shapes you. 
And you see, the same, from that same mouth, God speaks into the situations in our lives and the breath of God that created us and the word of God that shapes us is the only thing that can help us to get proper healing spiritually in our lives. Self-help, Instagram followers, all of that's cool, but you know what it doesn't do is it doesn't change the fabric of humanity. Only God can because he created us. And we would trust what comes out of the mouth of God and apply it into our own lives. You see, the breath that you created, the breath that created you and the word that guides you is the, what we need in order to get healing in our life. Even if it's counterculture. Let me explain. More than likely, the blind man in the scenario was Jewish. In the Jewish culture, it's rude to spit in someone. Some of you like in most cultures, Chris, it's rude to spit in someone. But what you would understand is, imagine him. First, Jesus makes him walk out of the village. Then he says nothing and he spits on him. Can you imagine what he felt like? He would have been astounded, confused, offended even. But what ends up happening is the thing that might have confused him, might have confounded him, might have offended him is the thing that God uses to heal him. And it goes against the culture of what he was told, what he was taught. Because Jesus doesn't play a political game or a cultural game. What he does is he plays a healing game. Because it's about the individuals that are attached to the miracles. That's why there's so many miracles of healing in the Bible, particularly the blind, the deaf, and the lame. I, and when we talk about healing, it's not just a physical healing. God wants to do a spiritual healing. I'm willing to bet that there may, not be a lot, there may not be people here who are physically blind, but there are people who could be spiritually blind or spiritually deaf and they lack faith in their life. Or perhaps that you are lame, it means that you can't walk the way God wants you to walk or has intended you to walk this thing called life. You see, there's so many miracles in the Bible to remind us that if he could do it for them, he can do it for us spiritually here today in our lives. But you might be here and you're like, Chris, forget that. I feel like I'm dead spiritually. I've run out of hope. I was trusting God and he didn't come through for me yet. I, I, I thought that maybe God could do something in my life, but it hasn't happened yet. And he said, because I feel spiritually dead, at the risk of sounding like a very marked ad, but wait, there's more. Like I said earlier, Jesus is, death doesn't stop God. In fact, Jesus himself resurrected three people from the dead. His friend Lazarus, called homie Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and a boy whose name we do not know, but we know that his mom is a widow. And as Jesus enters the town, he has this encounter with this um, with, this, with the funeral procession in Luke 7, what happens is this, is Jesus sees the widow, sees what's happening. The Bible says he's moved with compassion. Look what he does in Luke 7, 14. It says, then he came up and touched the beer. Not the castle. The beer was another name for coffin. And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Isn't it interesting in this story that Jesus first touches the coffin, then he performs a resurrection miracle? He doesn't touch the body of the boy. The Bible says he touches the coffin, right? And that's interesting because perhaps there's some things in our life, like a coffin is designed to carry dead people and dead things. There are areas in our lives that are like coffins that are keeping us dead, keeping us at bay, that are stopping us. What are the dead areas in our lives? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's unconfessed sin. Maybe we say, hey, God, have your way. I'm giving you this area. I give you permission to put your hands on it. I need a touch from heaven. Watch what will happen to your life because not only will he help you with that area, he'll cause you to live again, have hope again, trust again. We just need to let God in in whatever the situation is. Can I also encourage you with something else? 
that like I said, Jesus would have followed Jewish culture, which means by touching the coffin, he ran the risk of becoming ceremonially unclean, which tells me one other thing is that nothing's too unclean or dirty for God. Don't say, man, this is too dirty. God can't fix this. Yes, he can, because he'll touch it because it's not about religion. It's about a one-on-one encounter with a savior in heaven. Is this helping anyone? You ready to get to point number three? His hands correct us. Yeah, I go very quiet. It's like, yes, healing, leading, I can do the correcting. Uh-uh. You see, correcting isn't necessarily a bad thing. What you've got to understand is when the man first gets his eyesight, he says, I see men, but they look like trees. Perhaps it wasn't just a healing miracle, but a correcting miracle. Because healing is a form of correction. The reason I say this is if he knew what trees looked like, maybe this man could have seen before at some point in his life. And the reason I say that is in, in the first century at that time, eye infections were highly common and never treated. What would happen is you would get your eyes would become inflamed or there'd be an infection. And because people didn't wash their hands, didn't have hand sanitizer, thank you Jesus for hand sanitizer. What they would do is they would touch their eyes and then they would carry on. And then the eyes would be itching and touching. What would end up happening is that could lead to blindness. So perhaps this man could have seen, but life caused him to lose sight as he went through life because he got infections that were untreated and issues that arose up. And Jesus came not just to heal him, but to correct what life had done to him. Because the hands of Jesus, you see, they're no stranger to correction. In John 2, we read of Jesus when he gets to the temple. The temple was his version of the synagogue or church. And you need to picture this. Whenever I read scripture, I always picture it. I feel like Jesus was a bit of a gangster. He rolled with his squad, the 12, the 12 disciples. So they came to church, they rolled up, they came in convoy. Peter was obviously first with his personalized place on the water <laughs> and a bumper sticker that said, stay humble. And as they got to church, Peter would have got out first. He would open the door and would let the disciples go. Somewhere in the middle of the disciples walking out of the convoy would have been Judas. He's lukewarm, not in the front, not in the back, don't know what's happening. You got John. Everybody's walking up in front. There's John trying to be as close to Jesus. Jesus is like, listen, John, there's five love languages. Mine's the sixth personal space. Please, bro. <laughs> and as they get to the church, Jesus would have seen the money collectors, the, the money exchange. What they would do is they would take currency and they would exchange it, but they would charge a premium. It was an exorbitant exchange rate. The other thing they would do is they would take their money and they would sell sacrificial animals so people could sacrifice at the temple, but they were ripping people off. So when Jesus sees this, he walks into the temple. He wasn't angry at the prophet. I think he was probably more angry at the fact that he was stopping people from worshiping God the way that God intended them to. And as Jesus gets to the temple, he sees this and he gets angry. I'm, I know it's not written, but I'm pretty sure Peter jumps out. He takes his sword out, and Jesus is like, not yet. <laughs> Leave the ears alone, please. Just go back. And Jesus says, give me two seconds. And in John 2, it says this, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The hands that lead, the hands that heal, are the hands that made the whip that caused correction. Now, before you think God is trying to whip you over the back, he wasn't whipping you. You see, what you've got to understand, the Bible tells us this, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And just like the temple that we read in the story, Jesus comes into the temple that is our life and in our body, and he begins to remove the things that stop us from worshiping God to the full. And sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it might even hurt, but God never hurts you to harm you, he hurts you to help you. And today we've got to trust, trust in God's correction because correction leads to restoration. And that's your last point today, it's this. It's his hands restore us. After the whole temple scenario, you can imagine people were on edge when it came to Jesus. And as they went through towns, there was this reputation that happened with Jesus. And Jesus was performing miracles. Perhaps that's why they said, hey, this guy, he's maybe a friend of theirs, he's blind. In fact, Lord used a scripture of a blind person who got healing from Jesus. It wasn't uncommon. Yeah. And he said, hey man, Jesus might be able to help you. And they, they, they give him over to Jesus. Jesus not only heals him, not only corrects him, not only leads him, but he restores him. The word restores means to reinstate to the original existence, function, or purpose. In other words, when we are restored, when our sight is restored spiritually, we are reinstated to our original God-given, God-designed purpose for our lives. We can begin to see clearly what God wants and expects from our lives. Except we're kind of glossing over one the, the, the elephant in the room. The miracle didn't work the first time. Think about it. Can you see? I can see trees. Now, in the same way that Jesus spat on the ground and there was significance that, I'm willing to bet that there's significance in this. In fact, I didn't read through all the other miracles of Jesus. There's not one other miracle that, did, that didn't happen in an instant. Every other miracle happened instantly. Water into, the, into wine when they gave the cup to the MC, the master of ceremonies. Not that kind of MC. Healing, in an instant. Yeah. Deaf ears, in an instant. The scripture Lloyd read earlier, in an instant. Yeah. Yet this is the only miracle in the Bible that happened in stages. Why? Was this like a Black Friday special? Was this like an out there store miracle? It looks the same, but it's like a little bit tatty, so it's okay. Maybe Jesus started the miracle, he didn't check the schedule, and then all of a sudden it was stage four, and he's like, what happened? There's no power here. And the guy looks at him and he's like, well, at least it ain't stage six. <laughs> Too soon. Still, sorry. <laughs> what happened? Turn to the person next to you and say, what happened? It's confusing, right? If God was able to do all of the miracles like we've just read, he raised people from the dead and it happened in an instant. He calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus gets out the tomb. He goes to Jairus' daughter and in an instant she's healed and he says, hey, give us something to eat. Even the story we read, as he spoke, the boy not only sat up, but he began to speak. Why on earth did this miracle take stages? It's not because of the lack of faith on a man, because I've read miracles where somebody else stood in the gap. I've read miracles where there were non-believers who came to Jesus and he still was able to do something. So faith is not the issue here. And it's not like Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus is always enough and he never fails. Well, perhaps the reason that this miracle took long is the wording used, that word restored, because perhaps restoration isn't happening in an instant. It's not a destination, but it's a journey that you and I walk on. 
God wants to restore us, restore our hope, restore our finances, restore our business, but it doesn't happen like this all the time. Sometimes God says, hey, there's a process and a journey that we need to go on. And never forget this, the Christian journey, this Christian, this Christian thing, this life thing, it's a lot of things, but the thing that it is the most is a journey of restoration. Because with God's to begin with, we live in a fallen world and we are restoring our lives from the effects of sin in it. If you're a theologian in the room, you'd use the word sanctification. If you're not a theologian like me and you just like normal English, let me explain. Sanctification is this. It's a process that we go on. And it's, and it's split into the first part of it is this. It's justification. Or you get to say, just as if I'd never sinned. When Jesus hung on the cross for you and I, we were instantly justified. It happened in an instant. And when God sees us, it's just as if we never sinned. However, that's not where it ends. Because the second part of that is sanctification, and that takes a lifetime. That is the process in the journey of becoming more and more like Jesus day in and day out as we read his word, as we spend time with him. So many Christians stop at justification, and they never take that next step. Let me put it this way. Perhaps you put your hand up at one point this year, and you said yes to Jesus, and your life's not perfect. Guess what? You're in good company. Because sanctification takes a lifetime. It's a journey that we walk on week in, week out, day in, day out. And be grateful to God. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not where I used to be. But I know that I'm not where I need to be because God's still got more and he still wants me to take that next step and to trust him. And if you ever lose hope, just take a look at the disciples. They were justified. But Thomas doubted. You doubted here, you're in good company. Peter denied Jesus. Not only did Peter deny Jesus, he denied Jesus three times and then ran away. And went back to the life that he knew before. Judas, not only did he steal from the money bag, but he betrayed Jesus. Perhaps you feel like you've betrayed your faith. Guess what? God can still work with you. Because we serve the God who says, hey, you're not where you need to be, but we're going to get there together. Because this isn't religion. You see, I don't need you to be better. I need you to be with me. And if you're with me, I can help you be better as we walk on this journey of sanctification, becoming more and more and more Christ-like. The problem is this, is we get so grateful that God's taken us to a certain point, is we settle the trees. Imagine if the blind man just said, okay, cool, I can see trees. It's okay. It's better than where he was. Do you agree? But it's not where God wanted to take him. Because God had so much more in store for him. Don't get comfortable looking at trees. Trust God for your full vision to be restored because he's the God who restores. He's the God who heals. He's the God whose hands are here. I don't know if this is a point, but if you want to add it, you can say this. He's also the, it's also the hands that have holes in them. You see, after Jesus is raised from the dead, most people would assume that if he has the ability to heal, he'd heal the holes in his hands. But you read through scripture, there's a guy named Thomas. Remember I said, he doubted. You know the phrase doubting Thomas? It's biblical. And Thomas doubted Jesus. So he says, unless I can stick my finger through the holes and put my hand in his side, then I'll believe. So you know what Jesus does? 
Hello. Thomas, I'm here. And Thomas would have seen the holes where the nails went through. And he puts his hands to them and it's reminded that Jesus still has the scars of the cross. Because we don't settle at trees because of the tree at Calvary that Jesus hung on. And when he hung, he bared the price for you and I. And he doesn't have his hands healed because he wants you to remember that, hey, I dealt with it on the cross. Let's do this journey together. Let's keep on walking. Let's keep on trusting. Let's keep on doing what it is we need to do to get to the place that God wants to take us. Because the result of all of this is simply this. We get clear vision. Simply. Simply that. You want to go into 2020 strong, start getting your vision now. Start restoring, start healing, start letting God lead you so that we can get to the, where God wants to take us. But it starts with the decision to say this, I want to put my life in the hands of Jesus. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.